Welcome once again to Easter Sunday service. If you brought your Bible, uh, you're going to turn to the book of Genesis. Whoa, we're starting in Genesis on Easter Sunday. So we're starting Genesis very quickly. Then we're going to go to the book of Revelation. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, that's the first book and the last book uh, in the Bible. So the easiest two books to find are where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. We're going to spend a little bit of time in another book called Colossians, but we'll uh, cover that a little later on. But starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 um, is where we'll begin today. And, And I'm so thrilled to get the honor of preaching God's word on Easter Sunday. It's an amazing thing to me that for almost 2,000 years, God's people, his church, has been gathering to declare the risen king. And that today, globally, across the world, there are churches gathering in third world countries. There are churches gathering in in nations where they're persecuted for their faith. There are churches gathering in in buildings huge and small. There's churches gathering outdoors and indoors and in homes and in lakes and, and all over the place. There's God's people gathering to celebrate that Jesus is alive. What a cool thing we get to be a part of. What an honor that I have to get to bring God's word on the day that we remember that he did defeat the grave. That we can sing, hallelujah, you have won the victory. That death could not hold you down. What an awesome awesome day. And so I'm a little bit, believe it or not, you you may see City Church and think we've got kind of loud music and and maybe a different look and there's black paint and you may think that we're just completely non-traditional. I'm a little bit of a traditionalist when it comes to holidays. I love Christmas and I love Easter and I love the essence of what they are about. Um, So today's going to be a little bit different for me because this is my fifth Easter Sunday that I've had the opportunity to preach. And this will be the first one that I didn't just 100% preach the resurrection. We're going to cover the resurrection, but but this year I felt like God led me in a little bit different direction to get into some of the implications of the resurrection and to a little bit of what it means for us instead of just reading a story that probably most of us in this room are very familiar with. So we're going to start in Genesis because it's in Genesis chapter one and verse one. It says this, it says, in the beginning, God Now it goes on to say created the heavens and the earth, but all we need to cover for for what we're going to today is in the beginning God. In fact, would you say that with me? Say in the beginning God. That's all we need from Genesis. Now we're going to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter one and verse eight. And we're going to see a few things that Jesus, who is speaking, he's revealing himself to his, his disciple, John. John is perhaps at this point in time, the last remaining disciple who's alive. We know John's the only one who was not martyred for his faith. And Jesus appears to him on the island called Patmos, uh, this penal colony where John had been banished because they couldn't kill him. They tried to kill him, and he wouldn't die. God kept him alive, so they said, well, if we can't kill you, we're at least going to lock you up. So they sent him to this island called Patmos to keep him from preaching, to keep him from sharing Jesus with people. And so Jesus appears to him on this island. He has this revelation, this vision of Jesus, and Jesus makes some declarations about himself that I think are very interesting. For us, and, and I know you've probably never heard Revelation preached on Easter Sunday before. I've never preached Revelation on Easter Sunday before, but I'm so excited to share this with you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to read this one from the New King James Version because I love the way it's put here. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. If you don't know Alpha and Omega, those are Greek letters, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning 
and the end, just in case we don't know Greek, he spells it out for us. I'm the beginning and I'm the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then a few verses down in Revelation 117, he says it again just to drive home the point. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. You ever open an Easter egg and there was something awesome inside? My, my son is 18 months old and he had his first egg hunt where he could bid his own eggs Friday night. Uh, and I was proud of my boy. I was afraid he was going to like pick up one egg and look at it the whole time and want to open it up. But man, he got, he got it. One egg, put it in the back, basket. Let's go. Let's get another egg. I was so proud. So proud. Well, he has some Easter eggs that has some special stuff in them, some, some chocolate peanut butter eggs and some delicious stuff. And, and so when, when you open that Easter egg and there's something sweet and tasty and delicious, sometimes it's pretty exciting. Well, Revelation 118 is an Easter egg to me. There's something sweet and tasty and delicious in this next verse. Watch what it says. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. That's three amazing words right there. You're at a party sometime, and people try to start one-upping each other, and somebody at the party's like, yeah, I just got a brand-new 2016 Porsche, and everybody kind of stands back, wow, that's awesome. And, and somebody else like, yeah, well, my wife and I, we're in the middle of buying a 5,000-square-foot home on a lake. I'm like, man, that's awesome. And everybody's kind of comparing how great things are going in their life. And, and you step in, you say, well, yeah, I was dead. You win, <laughs> Right? Game over. How do you top that one? Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. I faced death and death lost. He says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive. Not just today, not just for a few more years, but forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Got one more scripture for you to turn to in our introduction here. It's Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is perhaps the most Christ-centered book in the Bible, which is in fact just a collection of Christ-centered books. And Colossians gives us some, some very great theology about who Jesus was and what is his significance. And in verse 15, the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, the Son, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, everybody say firstborn. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you're a frequently asked question, question is, what's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is Jesus. If your question is, what is my purpose in life? Your purpose in life is to get to know Jesus. Like Jesus is what it's all about. It says that through him, all things were created. So you were created through him and for him. Why are you here? You're for Jesus. That's the point. So many of us miss it, but that's the reason. Verse 17 says he is before all things. Everybody say before. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. It's not going to make a lot of sense right now, but it'll make sense later on. And in him, all things hold together. Last verse for you in this section. It says, he, Jesus, is the head of the body. Who runs city church? Jesus does. 
Who's in charge here? Jesus is. He is the head of the body, not just of this church, but of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So first off, a few verses ago, Paul says he's the firstborn in creation, and now he's the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The New King James says, so that in everything he might have the preeminence. I love that word, preeminence. The New Living Translation, if those words are too big for you, puts it this way, so that he might be first in everything. Jesus is first. It's the title of my message today. That's the topic that I have for you today. What I want you to do is look at your neighbor and tell him, I think this one might be for you. I think this message might be for you this morning. I want us to discuss and and deliberate for just a few minutes Easter morning, 2016, on the idea of the firstness of Jesus. I understand that the book of Revelation declares that Jesus is also the last. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. We don't have time to cover the last today. We'll have to discuss that another day. But today we're going to discuss the implications that Jesus is first. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather in your name. God, we thank you that Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price for us, but he didn't stay dead. He's raised to life again because he's first. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And Lord, we thank you that that there's a promise, an implication there for us that if he's first, that means there's others to come. God, there's a resurrection awaiting us as well. I ask you, Lord, to help us to meditate on the importance of Jesus' firstness today. Reveal to us the significance that Jesus is first. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know me, um, I am a reasonably competitive person. Some of you have had the, the, the blessing or the curse of encountering me in a competitive atmosphere. But uh, I don't know what it is. I like to win. I like to compete. Uh, the other night, I played racquetball with a few friends. Uh, my friend Matt and I, we played against this other team, and we lost the first three games. And I was a miserable person. Then me and Matt played one-on-one, and I won. And I went home happy. Why? Because I like to win. I don't like to lose. I'm competitive. It's just my nature. It's my makeup. It's the way that I am. I do not enjoy second place. I want a blue ribbon, not a red ribbon. Amen. I want a real trophy, not a participation trophy. It's something that matters. And and that's why I love that God allowed me to be an American. Because we are competitive people. See, what's going to happen in a few months, we're going to have some Summer Olympics in a city called Rio. And and the Summer Olympics are going to roll around, and and you look how excited we are for the Summer Olympics. Everybody's like, oh, really? They're coming? (laughs) Here's what we do in America. We don't think about the Olympics until the opening ceremonies. And then the opening ceremonies hit, and for two weeks we are obsessed with these people who do things that if we saw them doing it on the side of the road, we wouldn't even stop. Right? But all of a sudden it matters. Why? Because it's America against the world. And there's some medals on the line, right? And, and by September, we won't even think about them again. We won't even remember their names. But for two weeks, they're the most important people in the world to us. And, and we will put you on a Wheaties box if you win the gold. We don't put people on Wheaties box for silver medals. We're America. 
right? We got to win. That's how we are. That's how we are wired. So perhaps I'm just a product of my environment, but I love to win. My, bro- my son I told you he was 18 months old, and so uh, a couple days ago, my wife and I had a conversation, and it came up that he's almost like two years away from being old enough to play t-ball, which is crazy to me on a lot of levels, uh, but I'm pumped for it, right? Like, I played t-ball when I was a kid. I played baseball. I, I love uh, the opportunity to get my kid exposed to some of this stuff, but we haven't decided if we're going to put him in t-ball right away or not because t-ball today is different than t-ball was when I was a kid. See, t- see uh, I umpired t-ball. Uh, for a year, uh, a couple years ago. And I got there, and we'd gone through all this umpire training for different levels of baseball at Snowden Grove. And, and I, saw, I got there for my first assignment. The first night I did T-ball, I'd already uh, umped a, a couple other leagues before this, but it was my first T-ball night, and I was ready. So I show up at the umpire's room, and I come in, and I clock in, and I, I come to get my scorecard. And the head umpire says, no, you don't need a scorecard. Excuse me? He's like, yeah, we don't keep score at T-ball. What are we here for? What's the point? Man, when I was a kid, we kept score. My T-ball team, we only lost one game, and I remember that. I was like six years old. Why? You keep score. Why why are we going to play if there's no score? So here's what I can promise you. I don't know if Judah will play T-ball. I don't know if he does play T-ball, if he'll be the one who hits the ball and then runs to third base instead of first base. Or, or if he's the one who hits the ball and then he chases the ball into the outfield. I saw all of this up in T-ball. Kids got no clue. I don't know if he'll be the one, the one out in the outfield eating his boogers and picking dandelions. Or maybe in Jesus' name he'll be the superstar. I don't know which one he will be, but I can guarantee you this. Daddy will be keeping score. <laughs> he will know if he won or lost. We are not playing a game. Just to play the game. My mom's like that. Oh, I don't care if I win or lose. I just like to play. Forget that. (laughs) We're playing to win. I'm competitive. It's how I am. I know I got issues. I understand. It's all right. You got issues too. We're going to work through them together. Here's the beauty for me. For someone like me, I serve a God who is second to no one who is second to nothing. It makes it very easy for someone wired like me to give my life to someone like Jesus because Jesus is always first. All he does is win, 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 no matter what. 100% of the time, Jesus is always first. The very language of the Bible implicates this from from the start, from the very first sentence in Scripture. It says, in the beginning, God. So it starts with this massive assumption, assumes that, that we accept the existence of God. It doesn't try to explain God. It doesn't say where God came from. He was preexistent. He was preeminent. He was before the beginning. He's so before the beginning that he's not even beginning. He's just be. He doesn't need a beginning. You could put it this way. Jesus was before, before. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, right? That's who he is. He's always been first. This is good news. In fact, I believe it's great news for us, especially for those of us who need a God who wins. This is all that he does, everything that Jesus gets involved in, everything that God is exposed to, he will eventually assume first place. And understand this, in your life, you may not have given him that place. 
But the Bible says there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So you have the opportunity to give him first place in your life, or you have the opportunity one day for him to take it. But eventually he will always be first. He will be first in all things. Why have I been given an assignment to move from Seattle, Washington through North Carolina and Georgia and Oklahoma to end up in Olive Branch, Mississippi to preach to you on Easter Sunday, 2016 about the firstness of Jesus, something that you probably already know because I don't think that we really comprehend and grasp the depth of the implications of his preeminence. And I think if we can wrap our minds around it, if we can begin to understand who he really is, this catalytic aspect of his character is going to make changes and applications in every one of our everyday lives. Whether you go to work and you wear a blue collar or a white collar, or you don't wear a collar, or you don't go to work. Whether you're a man or a woman, a mom or a dad, a grandpa or a grandma, there's deep implications and applications for your life that Jesus is first. I'll tell you one thing very quickly before we get into it. What this will do for you when you understand it is you're never going to give up something that God has called you to again. You're never going to walk away from something that God has for you when you truly understand that Jesus is first. You're not going to miss out on his best when you wrap your mind around this. So this morning, I have very simply for you, if you're taking notes, it's going to be a real easy one for you. I got a two-point message. You're not even supposed to do that. In Bible college, we weren't even allowed to have a two-point message. You had to have at least three. But I'm breaking the rules on Easter Sunday. I got a two-point message for you on the implications, what it means that Jesus is first. Number one, if Jesus is first, it means that Jesus is more. It's not like a blank after that. Jesus is more. That's it. He's more. You see, if, if you're in an athletic competition, if, uh, if I get in a foot race and I come in first, first of all, that means you're slow. Uh, but secondly, if I come in first, uh, it means that I was more something than the person I was racing against, right? I was more fast or more faster. Let's just make it real good English. Uh, I was more athletic. I, I was more prepared. I, I was more something for that race. If you come in first, you are by implication more. Jesus, notice that I said I, because that's the privilege of being the pastor. I'm the one who won in my story. In your story, you can win, but I got the opportunity to say that, so let's, you know. Jesus is more. More is not what Jesus does. More is not what Jesus possesses. More is who Jesus is. It's the nature of of his existence. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 says that we can gather together and begin to try and grasp how high and how wide and how deep and how long is the love of Christ. But it says that it surpasses knowledge. His love is so great that there's more of it than I'll ever get my brain around. No matter how intelligent I may happen to be, he is more. Romans 5.17 says, for if by the trespass of the one man, he being Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's more than sin. He's more powerful than your shame. He's more than your grief. He's more than your pain. He is more. It's who 
he is. I promise you we're going somewhere today. Romans 5.20, just a few verses later, says this. says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, where sin abounded, the King James says, grace increased all the more. See, Jesus is the personification of grace. Jesus is God's expression of grace. Grace is simply God giving me that which I do not deserve. I don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his forgiveness. I don't deserve his sacrifice. But God has extended his grace to me in the person of Jesus. And it says, even in a generation where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because Jesus is more. He's got more goodness than we need, even in this generation. He's got more power than we need, even in a sinful lifetime. He's got more. He is more. He can't help it. When he shows up, he's just more. It's his nature. He's more than enough. He's excess. John 10.10 says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is basically giving his mission statement. He's saying there's an adversary. There's someone who's out to get you, out to harass you, out to mess you up. And he says, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. See, he said, I didn't just come that you could have life. How many Christians do you know that are just trying to exist? They're just trying to survive. Jesus said, I came that you could have life, but that you could have it to the full. That you could have more. And I'm not just talking about stuff. That's such a baseline, basic expression when Jesus says more. I'm talking about more joy. I'm talking about walking in some more power. I'm talking about walking in some more boldness. I'm talking about walking in some more anointing. He says, I've come that you could have life, but not just exist. I want you to have more. Do you believe that God wants more for you today than what you're walking in? Do you believe that God wants more for you today than what you've already experienced? Do you believe that God has more for you to accomplish for his glory than that which you've already accomplished? I believe it. You know why? Because you're still here. Because the point where God doesn't have more for you is the point where he just says, I'm taking you to heaven. I'm giving you all. This is it. This is everything I got. Come to it. But until you get to that point, he's got some more for you to walk in. Amen? Jesus is more. You see, he's first. And because he's first, he must therefore be more. But he's not just more. Number two, second point for you this morning. Jesus is before. Jesus is more, and Jesus is before. And I didn't even rhyme those on purpose. That just happened. I don't mean to insult your intelligence today, but but I want to make sure that I make this so plain and so simple that we can all grasp a hold of it. If you're in that same foot race that we talked about earlier, and, and obviously you had to be more something to get across the finish line first, but there's another implication. If you came in first, you crossed the line before. Anybody else, right? So if Jesus is first, he is before all things. This was my favorite. Can I unpack this one for you? This one, I believe, may rock your world this morning. Mark chapter 16, Matt already referenced it this morning. He didn't even know that I was going here. But Mark chapter 16, as these ladies come to the tomb and they're consumed with grief for Jesus who is dead and they've come to to prepare his body. They've come to anoint him with some spices and and perform some Jewish rituals on a dead body. And and they show up and, and the stone has been rolled away and they freak out. Where's the body? What happened to Jesus? They have this conversation, verse 6. Don't be alarmed, the angel says. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
see the place where they laid him. And then he says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. You see, Jesus is always going ahead of you. Jesus never comes and says, I'm going to follow you. Jesus bids us follow me. What does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? It means he's going before us. He's going ahead of us. He's been through it before us. He's seen it before us. He's accomplished it before us. He's just asking us to come behind him. Just a couple chapters before this in Mark chapter 14, we see one of the, to me, one of the the saddest and, and oftentimes most difficult to understand points in scripture. Jesus is at the last supper with his disciples. And he tells his disciples, he says, every single one of you is going to deny me. Every one of you is going to fall away from me. What, what a sad statement. It's like, why do you even need to tell him that, Jesus? But then Peter, Peter's teacher's pet. Peter steps up, not me, Jesus. I'm not denying you. I'm better than these other 11 fools. I'm your favorite. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times in the next couple of hours. Man, it's like so depressing. He's like, why did you have to tell him that, Jesus? Why do you have to put him on blast in front of everybody? What a difficult thing. If he's going to fall away, if he's going to deny you, couldn't you just let him do it on his own? You ever wondered about that? Why did Jesus have to tell him? Well, Jesus is arrested. And Peter follows at a distance. And three times, people ask him, hey, were you with Jesus? And, and Peter, three times about his Savior, his king, his Lord, his friend, this man who's radically changed his life three times back to back to back. Peter says, no, I don't even know him. I never even met him. It's the darkest, most depressing, worst moment of Peter's life. And Peter was hanging on a cross upside down. But I guarantee you when you get to heaven and you talk to Peter, he's going to tell you this was it. This was the worst. Hanging on the cross for Jesus was nothing compared to the pain of when I denied my Lord. And the rooster crows, and all of a sudden, Peter remembers, Jesus told me this was going to happen. And in that moment, I believe, Peter was confronted with the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He remembered the love on Jesus' face. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me, but I love you anyway. I've already seen it. You're going to bail out on me. I'm going to die for you, and you're going to say you don't know me. And even despite that, I love you. You ever think about that Jesus loved you knowing every single time you deny him? Every single time your life would not reflect him? Every single time you'd commit something to him and tell him, God, I'm doing this, and I'm giving you everything, and I'm going to read my Bible every day this time, and I'm doing this, this, and this. And three days later, or maybe like Peter, three hours later, we've already blown it. And Jesus said, I love you anyway. I choose you anyway. I'm dying for you anyway. You see, Jesus has already gone before us. He already knows what we're going to experience. So then fast forward back to Mark 16, as they're at the empty tomb, listen again to what the angel says to these women. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter gets a special shout out from the angel, the messenger of God, just days after he denied Jesus three times. Why? 
Because even in your deepest, darkest moments, even in the time when you are the furthest away from who God has ever called you to be, he's thinking about you. He's looking out for you. He's reaching out to you. He's wooing you back to himself. And so the angel says, go tell the disciples. And Peter, what a significant two little words that may be. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what season you're in. I don't know how challenging it's been. I don't know the pain that you've seen or the pain that you are about to see. I don't know what's missing from your life or who's missing from your life this morning. I don't know what questions hang over your future today. But here's what I do know. Jesus has already been there. He's already seen it. Told our team this morning, I said, we're about to go out and have service on Easter Sunday. We're going to see faces we hadn't seen in a long time. We're going to see a fuller building. We put out extra rows. A lot of stuff's going to happen. Somebody's going to come to know Jesus today. But you know what? He already knows what's going to happen. He already knows what we're going to screw up. He knows what thing I'm going to say wrong. He knows what note we're going to miss. Like, he already knows. And he anointed us, and he chose us to be a part of this service today anyway. He's gone before us. And yet he still wants us to come with him. I think that's a very beautiful thing. He's already been there. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 53, God is speaking to his prophet. And he says this about Jesus, about the Messiah who's to come. This verse, by the way, is 700 years before Jesus shows up. And Isaiah says this, he says, surely he being Jesus took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Jesus already felt your pain. Jesus already experienced your suffering. Jesus already been through every challenge you're going to face. He took it with him to the cross. He paid the price for it. He made it. He made it. And if he went through it and he got through on the other side, so can you. He says, follow me. I've gone through it for you. All you got to do is come after me. Just keep moving towards me. Just keep coming to me, and you're going to get where you need to be. He's before. He's already there, and he's working things out for you. Can I say this, too? He's crazy about you. Like, he'd have to be crazy about you to die for you, right? Like, I love you, but I ain't going to die for you. I'm just being straight. Like, I don't love you that much, except Melody and Alexa. This wasn't for you. Everybody else, that's for y'all. But... He's crazy about you. He's nuts over you. He's so overwhelmed with passionate love for you that he laid down his life for you. He's gone before you. Here's what I would say to you this morning as we get ready to wrap up. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what God's calling you to that you're just struggling through right now. Maybe you're struggling through your marriage. Maybe you're struggling through school. Maybe you're struggling through a a job situation, a financial situation, a health situation. I can't tell you how that situation will end up. I'm not going to stand up here and promise that that God's going to take away everything that you're going through and that you're never going to have another problem or another another bill that doesn't get paid. I I can't promise you that. Here's what I can promise you. Jesus has gone before you. And if you will keep moving towards him, if you will keep following him, if you will not allow the enemy to cause you to get stuck and to get paralyzed and to stop where you're at, you're going to get through it. Things might, there might be some scars on the other side. There might be some things that change. You might begin to walk with a limp like Jacob did after he experienced what God had for him. I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, but I will promise you this, you will get through it. 
Because Jesus has gone before. And on the other side, there is a day coming there will be no more pain, no more shame, no more sorrow, no more tears, no anything but his presence, his goodness, and his grace. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in healing. I believe in God's blessing. I believe God wants to move in your life. But sometimes God moves instantaneously, and sometimes it's a process. And sometimes that process is painful. Don't stop. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Touch somebody and say, keep moving. We just have to keep moving. To close, I want to take you back to a passage we read towards the beginning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says that he, he being Jesus, he, he being Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy, the preeminence. You see, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Remember Revelation 118, Jesus declares, I was dead. Now I'm alive forever and ever. Colossians 1.18 tells us that he's the firstborn from among the dead. There's a very important implication in firstborn. You see, Judah is my firstborn. He's 18 months old. He didn't used to be my firstborn. He just used to be my kid because I had one. But now we got two. And now Judah's my firstborn. When God declares that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, he's saying there's some others that are coming. See, he's saying that you may face death. In fact, most of us in this room probably will. Unless God comes back in our lifetime, chances are most of us in this room are going to die. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say chances are really high that it's going to happen. It's pretty much happened to everybody before us, right? Except a, a couple exceptions. But even when you die, Jesus died and he was the firstborn from the dead. He's saying, you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus has gone before you into death, and he defeated death for you. So when that day comes and you breathe your last, or as you're mourning a lost loved one this morning who knew Jesus, understand this. They may not be here anymore, but Jesus was the firstborn from among the dead, so there's some others that are coming with him. And that promise is for all of us who call upon his name, who give our life to Jesus. If you're a Christian today, Jesus has gone before into death. He's more, he's before. But I want to show you one last thing in Colossians 1.18 as we wrap up. See, the promise is not for everybody of a resurrection, of a new life. The promise is for a very specific group. It says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You see, there, there's a lot of people in America who think that they're Christians because you prayed a prayer one time and said, Jesus, keep me from going to hell. Or Jesus, come into my heart. And, and, we, and we, sometimes we cheapen what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Colossians says Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. There's some other dead that are coming. But it also says that he must have the supremacy. In other words, who is going to come with Jesus? Those who let Jesus be first in their life. You see, if Jesus is just a side thing that we do on occasion, if Jesus is just a thing that, that, that makes us feel good when we go to a funeral, if Jesus is just something who, who we embrace in a moment here or there when it's convenient for us, he's not first and he's not supreme. And if he's not supreme, you're not his. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're Jesus's, man, he is more than anything you will ever need. And he has gone before you. But if you're not yet Jesus's, if he's not first in your life, 
I want to warn you this morning that you're missing out. There's so much better for you. He wants to be first. He wants to have that place where he has the supremacy, where he has the preeminence. And if you look honestly at your life, and I'm not saying you, you, man, if you ever mess up that you're not going to heaven. I'm not saying that at all. Man, God's grace is sufficient for us. Amen. Man, praise God. If, if, if all it took was messing up one time to miss out on heaven, I would have been dead and in hell a long, long time ago. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. You don't have to get everything right. You don't have to do everything right. You don't have to never sin again to be a Christian, but you do have to do one thing. You got to make him first. Because it's who he is. He is first. He is not second. He will never be second. He will not settle for second place in your life. He will be first or he will not be in it. That's the only option he gives us is he will simply be first. And so this Easter Sunday, I present to you a question to wrestle with, and maybe it's not comfortable, and maybe it's not what you expected as you get ready to go eat your ham. I don't know what people eat on Easter. We don't have like a set thing. Whatever it is you're doing for lunch today, man, maybe you wanted something a little more encouraging, and I don't come to, to make it discouraging for you. But I want you to know that you can spend eternity with the firstborn from among the dead. But it only happens if you let him be first, because that's who he is. Let's give him everything. Let's give him ourselves. We're going to miss it. We're going to blow it. We're going to screw it up. And he's gone before us, and he's got grace for us in that. He just wants to know that we've let him be first. Let's give him what he's worth. Let's give him what he deserves. Let's let him be who he is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.